Well, I want to say a warm welcome also to all of you who are worshiping here with us today. A special shout out to our brothers and sisters at our Butterfield campus this morning and to all of you that are connecting with us online today. This last year has brought so many unexpected things, but one of the great blessings of the season, amongst others, is that we have connected with all kinds of people through the online channel in a way that has expanded the life of our church family. And so wherever you happen to be, in a comfortable pew or uh, sitting in a coffee shop or perhaps out for a walk in the neighborhood or in your home, we're just thrilled to be together uh, on the journey. We are continuing today our series on the great biblical covenants. We've called it Thicker Than Water. And as we prepare to come to God's Word today and to think about the text of uh, this morning, I want to invite you just to bow your heads for one more moment with me as we come before God in prayer. And now, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are a few stories in the Bible that are as well known as the one that we're going to be looking at together today. In fact, I heard this week of a woman who was reading to a grandchild from a children's storybook Bible. And at the close of the reading, she decided to quiz the child on what uh, she had just read. Uh, Adriana, she said, who was the man in the big boat that we just read about? Noah, the little girl said exuberantly. And then, curious as to what the child might say, the older woman asked somewhat mischievously, and what was Noah's last name, she said. And the girl said, Zark, Noah's Zark. How many of you feel like you know the story of Noah's Ark? Raise your hand if that is a familiar tale to you. Yeah, I'm going to guess that even above Dr. Seuss, this is, is a story that we all know uh, quite well. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, where you can see a real life-sized uh, version of the Ark that has been reconstructed. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever watched um, Evan Almighty, which was the Steve Carell uh, version of the Noah's Ark story uh, that gained such popular uh, attention some years ago. I think a lot of us are familiar with the general outline of the Noah's Ark tale. But I want to suggest to us that there's even more for us to take in. And I want to invite you to think about this story afresh with me today. Many years ago, there was a best-selling book many of us uh, got and put on our coffee tables entitled, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Do you remember that uh, book? It was a book in which we were reminded of those simple lessons we learned as children about the importance of cleaning up after ourselves, of sharing with our neighbors, and so many other important life lessons. Well, I recently came across a little piece that was entitled, Everything I Need to Know I Learned from Noah. 
I don't know whether you've seen that out there on the internet as well, but I want to invite you to listen to my paraphrase of a few of these very helpful principles from the story. The first lesson uh, might be simply entitled, Stay in Shape. Stay in Shape. Because when you're 600 years old, God might ask you to do something really big. Uh, This is a reminder that God's call upon our lives does not stop. We do not retire from being available to God's call uh, in our life. Uh, Secondly, be sure to plan beyond today. Plan beyond today. Remember that Noah began building the ark when there wasn't a suggestion of rain anywhere in the sky. And yet he got out in front of the need. Uh, So plan beyond this particular moment. Thirdly, don't be crushed by critics. Don't be crushed by critics. Every important work that you do in your life is going to face criticism. There are always going to be naysayers, all of the people who think that what you're doing is crazy or stupid or unaccomplishable. Uh, Remember how Noah uh, kept going, kept doing the job that God had given him despite his critics. Fourthly, Listen to science, but don't idolize experts. Keep in mind that the ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. Okay, that's good perspective to hold on to. Fifthly, travel in twos. Travel in pairs. Life is is much easier that way and much more fruitful and generative when we're in community, when we don't try and do it Uh, all by ourselves. Sixthly, remember, variety matters. Uh, Variety matters. Snails and cheetahs, giraffes and porcupines all made it onto the ark. Whatever color, shape, and gifts you happen to bring, they matter to God. God is a, a Lord of variety and diversity and multiplicity. Seventhly, and this is really important, don't miss the boat. Don't miss the boat. When God extends an invitation to you, an opportunity to come into relationship with him, uh, enter in. Don't miss this opportunity. It will not be there forever. Don't miss the boat. And finally, number eight, live with hope. Live with hope. Because no matter how big and bad the storm is, and we face a lot of them in this life, and we don't know what might be even on the horizon, still live with hope. Because if we stay with God, at the end of it, there's a rainbow. At the end of it, there's a promise, there's hope. Hang on to that, even in the midst of these times. Well, I suppose we can go home now. We've learned all that there is to learn from this story. (laughs) But wait a second, a lot of you are at home now, so I'm just going to keep going if you don't mind. Uh, Let me take this story just a little bit further today, if I may. In fact, let me pull the camera back if if we can. I want to take it back and look at this story from a wider viewport and consider the even larger themes that are suggested in this particular tale uh, as they have great import for your life and mine as well. You see, the tale of Noah is a crucial piece of a much, much larger storyline that has got two major themes that I underlined when we began this series two weeks ago. Those themes are covenant and fulfillment. Covenant and fulfillment. The Bible tells the story of how God 
leads his people towards the fulfillment of his good purposes by establishing these particular covenantal arrangements with them. Uh, in other words, he wants to see them flourish. He has a plan for this. He is going to fulfill those, uh, that, that plan, but it, it will move forward as people live into these covenants that God establishes. Uh, God basically draws a circle in the sand, as it were, and he says, step into this way of life with me. Live according to this particular set of arrangements. I'm asking you to do this, and I promise to do this, and if together we do this, we're going to see a wonderful quality of thriving. We're going to see all kinds of blessing as each of us keeps the covenant. Well, as I said at the very start of the series, the Bible is actually structured, uh, its skeletal structure is a series of covenants like this, seven of them to be uh, precise. And, and to change the metaphor from, from sand to water, each of these covenant, covenants flows from the one before it, expanding the circle of God's purposes like concentric circles of ripples from a stone dropped into a pond until there comes a final covenant all the way out, this one that Jesus comes to fulfill and to invite you and me into, what's known as the new covenant. And we'll be meeting that one on Good Friday. Last week, Pete Stearns unpacked for us the first covenant. After the stone had been dropped, the first rippled circle is what Pete talked about uh, with all of us. And I just want to cover that again because it sets the stage importantly for this second one. Uh, this original covenant became known as the Edenic covenant because it, it was set uh, there in the Garden of Eden. And I want to give you just quickly a sketch just to remind us and catch us up of that backstory. God has created this amazing universe out of nothing. He's formed a, a vast cosmos and he has remarkably placed a, an abundant world in the middle of the cosmos, this, this beautiful world that we live on, and, and the life on that world is fecund and full of potential. Uh, it, it, it is symbolized in the scriptures by the, this vision of a, the garden. And most important to understand, God has woven into this arrangement, this, uh, this circle that he has made, uh, four of what I'm going to call lifelines, four basic lifelines, uh, four basic conditions, which if respected and observed, will result in a life of flourishing. The first is the line of communion. Okay, that's the first of the lifelines he draws, the line of communion. Human beings are meant to live in a dependent, connected relationship with their creator. And out of that line is gonna flow all of the best in life. The second is the community line. It's a horizontal line. Human beings are meant to live in a transparent, uh, considered, caring relationship with others. It is not good for man or woman for that matter to be alone, God says. Uh, I don't want you to do life alone. I want you to be helpmates to each other. Your, your well-being, your thriving will depend upon the quality of this love that you have, horizontally speaking, for your neighbor, for your helpmates. The third arrangement that God then sows into the creation is what I will call the line of custody. 
uh, or we might call it the line of stewardship. Human beings are put into the middle of the garden, not just to consume it, but to care for it, to be, to be nurturers of it, to be the namers of animals and tenders of this incredible garden. The flora, the fauna, everything that God has given them a temporary dominion over is not theirs to just use up, but they're to be stewards of this creation, of this earth. And the last of the lines is a simple caution line. I'm going to call that the caution line. God says, in effect, there are going to be some things that look good and pleasing to the eye that are not good for you, and I want you to stay away from them. You're going to have an amazing range of choices, but there are going to be some things that I'm going to say, don't go, I'm going to put a line around and say, don't go there. Uh, And I'm going to do that without explaining to you why always. I'm going to do this. I'm going to draw that line simply because I am God. And your ability to accept that there are some places that you simply are asked not to go is probably an indicator of whether you're willing to even have a God. Respect that there is something bigger than you. So this is the first covenant that God sets up in the Bible, the original circle. It's the core set of arrangements for life. Respect these various lines of communion and community, of custody and of caution. Respect these lines and life will go better than it ever could otherwise. So as Pete reminded us last week, Human beings found it extremely difficult to continue to respect the lines uh, or to use the metaphor that he used and he, as he showed that wonderful video of his son, uh, Shepard. Um, human beings found it very hard to keep their hands off the candy. And, and as a result of that, they crossed the caution line. They broke their communion with God as a result of this. They actually then swiftly severed their community with one another. They began to blame each other and attack each other. Uh, and thus begins this, and, and then the custody of the garden was lost as well. And this starts off this long cascade, this long, difficult distorted era of human history that theologians have called after the fall, or we might call reality shows. And I mean that, um, I mean that in a double entendre sense. When Adam and Eve tried to be as God and, and draw the lines in their own way and not respect his way, then the reality showed that this was not actually the way to flourishing as they thought it might be, as the serpent told them it would be. Uh, the devil figure in the story promised they could be as God. They could have all of the abundance of God if they just chose their own way and reality showed that this was not to be, that that way would not lead to the life that people really ultimately wanted. And so the next chapters of Genesis are really all about the fallout of the fall. They're about the cascading consequences, the the fracturing and disfiguring effect of that original choice to leave behind the lines of God. And, And ultimately, the next 
season of history, just to shift metaphors once more, is about the spread of the, of the virus of sin and selfishness and all of the ways it turned things upside down. We see it destroy the relationship between the first siblings, the, the brothers Cain and Abel, and it leads to the first murder. Uh, we watch it infiltrate commerce and, and city building and grow to a, a towering arrogance uh, in the community of man. We watch as pride, lust, envy, gluttony, greed, wrath, sloth, all of the deadly sins uh, just begin to work their way out and into almost everything and sicken multiple families and indeed entire societies are affected by these sins. And, and ultimately it leads to even more devastating forms of the disease of sin. Uh, terrible conflicts of many kinds. I find it really hard to read those chapters in Genesis and, and, and to watch those, the reality show in a sense of all of this until I actually get so used to watching it as I still do today. I get so used to watching the effects of sin in a sense that I actually pull down my mask and I breathe it all in and it makes me kind of sick myself. I kind of get deadened, numbed. I lose my taste and my smell. I don't recognize anymore that I'm caught up in this world of sin. I'm part of it now. I'm sickened by it now. Do you have any sense of that for yourself? Can you see the effects of sin in our world today? Well, the Bible teaches that, that God never grows numb to sin. That, that God never uh, grows senseless or insensible to the implications of the fall. Uh, God is good and holy to the absolute core. And so we read in Genesis chapter 6, and now we zero in on the text for today, these tremendously provocative words. I quote, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was more only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. Wow! The universe and world that began with God saying, this is good, this is very good, now provokes in God's heart such profound regret. He wants to shake the etch-a-sketch and start it all over again. I think that it's really important to pay attention to this story. I think one of the reasons why this biblical story remains one of the most significant ones in all of the scriptures is because it shows us the deep troubling of God's heart. It explains the flood that follows this, the ark that rides upon that flood and the next major covenant that we'll touch on before going today. As Justin Buzzard, a pastor 
in San Jose, California, observes, this passage tells us a lot, something very important about the personality of God. The text says that as God looks out and he sees what has become of his creation, it grieves him to his heart. Our God feels is probably the most important insight here. Our God deeply feels. Our God has voluntarily bound up his heart. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to bind up his heart with his creation, with his people. And God experiences pain, heart-shattering pain, when things go so wrong in the life of what he has made. The philosopher Nicholas Westerstorff says this, that the tears of God are the meaning of history. That the tears of God are the meaning of history. In the garden, humanity said in effect to God, we don't want you. We don't want you. We're gonna do life on our own terms. And why that wasn't the end of the whole story is the real mystery of the story of the flood. Why God didn't just wipe out the experiment forever, right there, is the real mystery to be answered. I think of a scene in the famous movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. There was an old version of it. There was a remake of it starring Keanu Reeves. And Keanu plays this alien being, this super intelligence that comes to the earth. And in this remake of the old classic, he represents apparently a, a, a being or a race of being beings that have been watching the earth for a very, very long time. And acquainted as these beings are with how infinitely rare and precious this life-blessed speck of green and blue in the midst of the vastness of the universe is, understanding the uniqueness and preciousness of this creation amidst all of the vacuum and darkness and death and nothingness of the universe the advanced beings are profoundly concerned over what has become of the earth. And they see the hardness and the violence and the divisions and the corruption and the environmental destruction spreading all over the planet and their emissary tells the earthlings, I have come to save the earth. And at first, the earthlings reckon that's very good news. You've come to save us. Until it becomes patently clear that no, he has come to save the earth from us. That in order to save this part of the creation, human beings must go. I ask the question again, why was this moment in Genesis not the end of the book?
not the end of the story. I know that people regularly express their outrage at the notion that a loving God could ever send a great flood like this as not only the Bible but numerous other traditions say had happened. Fascinating article in the New York Times actually on that subject of how many different civilizations have a flood story in them which the authors and scholars that read this suggest that something happened way back in primal history that's lodged itself in the minds of so many races and peoples. And I put that, by the way, in the footnote in the manuscript of this message you can find online. But this notion, this sense of outrage that uh, at God and how he could do such a thing probably only betrays just how stuck we are in thinking that we are somehow necessary to this universe. That we are, are somehow so important. I mean, the thought of so many people perishing is a horror to me. It's a horrible thing to contemplate the effects of that kind of an event. It's hard to take it in. I would never choose it. I would never want to advocate for it. I would want to try and talk God out of it. But why do I still persist in thinking sometimes that we are just so meritorious that of course any truly intelligent and good superior being would have to prize us no matter how much we messed up. No matter how much we chose to say forget the communion, the heck with the community, I'm not doing the custody, I don't care about the cautions, no matter how much we did it, God would just have to somehow continue to preserve us. And so with Pastor Justin, I sometimes wonder, why didn't he end the experiment long ago? Justin himself answers the question this way. Because God decided to have tears. God decided not to harden his heart completely, but to let himself grieve. God decided to stay in the game. God decided to suffer and to love And the Bible tells us that there was unconscionable, world-disfiguring sin spreading everywhere, but, Genesis 6 and verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, it's really important to know that this word that gets translated in English as found favor is the Hebrew word for got grace. Noah got grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is receiving a good that one has not earned or does not even deserve. It's not that God looked at Noah and said, oh, a terribly corrupt, disfigured world, but here's one pure guy. One exception. 
I can start again with this one exception because he's so good. It's not that that was what was going on in this story. On the contrary, Noah was a tragically flawed man still, as we would see after the ark, as he continued to do stupid things. And God looked at Noah, and and it wasn't out of a sense that I found the the one righteous man uh, that is worth saving. God freely, maybe even irrationally, chose to grace Noah and his family with the opportunity to continue the experiment, to continue life. God gave a still sinful man and his still messed up family the instructions for building the ark and gathering the creatures and the seeds that were needed to keep life going on this planet. And if you read on in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, you'll get reacquainted with a lot of those other lessons with which I started the message here today. But what I want to focus on before we go are a couple of the bigger messages here. When Noah and his family finally emerge from the ark on dry ground, we get a picture of what you might call a new creation. We're told, and I quote, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Have you heard those words before? Right, they're there at the beginning. It's a new creation, a revisiting, a restarting of the creation that's going on. I love this because it's one of those swinging door verses I mentioned in installment one of this series. It's one of those door verses that swing forward in time and backward in time. And when you swing it backward in time, it points back to God's original intention back during Eden and the Edenic covenant, but it also swings forward in time and it points towards a vastly greater restoration of the creation that is yet to come that will be described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 at the very end of the story of the Bible. And then God says this, Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. Again, we're seeing a recapitulation of Eden in a sense. You've got this whole garden. Go for it. Enjoy. God is saying, you've got lots of choices, but I'm drawing a caution line around one thing. Let's see how this goes. Let's see how this goes. And he, and he basically says here, I want you to stay away from uh, meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. God is basically saying, I'm restarting this project. From here on out, I want you to reverence life more than you have in the past. And by reverence life, I mean, I want you to take seriously the wonderful gift here. I want you to do it in a different way than those before you did. You can eat pretty much anything 
on the land or in the sea, but stay away from red meat and as a, as a reminder of how much I cherish the lifeblood of my creatures. And know this, says God, I will ask you to give an account for any human life you take. Or by extension, I can imagine that you could have saved, but didn't. My people will work to preserve life. They will be champions for life. Are you and I champions for life? For life at the beginning, for life at the end, for life that isn't exactly like our life, do we reverence life? in the way God wants us to, calls us to. I will confess to you that on one level, this command of God seems a little strange to me. Actually, it seems from one viewport a bit hypocritical to me. How can God give these instructions to reverence life after he's just sent a flood to wipe out life. <laughs> to wipe out so many lives. I've wrestled a lot with that question. I imagine many of you have too. One possibility that occurs to me is that maybe the flood was a necessary measure to establish a world where fewer people would suffer in the future. That this harsh measure at that moment when the population of the world was really pretty constrained was necessary to, to perform a reset that might live, lead to the greater prospering, prospering and flourishing of a vastly larger number of people over time. I suppose it's possible that that things had become so barbaric. I mean, the text says there was just evil all the time, evil everywhere all the time. Maybe it had become so bloodthirsty that only a profound reset could, could possibly result in a less hostile world. The cross of Christ shows us that sometimes in the pursuit of greater life for all, terrible sacrifices have to be made. The second possibility is that for its ultimate spiritual progress, the human race needed, desperately needed, a dramatic sign like this. As I suggested before, maybe the flood was a wake-up call. Maybe it was meant to be an indelible reminder to human civilizations everywhere for all time of the seriousness of sin, a clear message that life is not to be used any way we choose, but is rather a privilege given by God to be used for good. We talk so much about our rights in our world when God wants us to understand our responsibilities as stewards of the gift he's been given, given to us. In a sense, I suppose all of us are like Noah. 
We have found unmerited favor before God. We've been given the grace of life on this green and blue planet. And I will confess, just as one of the of the travelers on the surface of this planet, I go through so much of every single day, hardly even thinking about all of the grace that's holding me. The way I'm, I'm, I'm just held together, the molecules of my body just hold together, the air just fills my lungs, even through a mask, still filling my lungs. Do we imagine often enough the grace we've been given, the gift we've been given? We cannot take this grace for granted The way we respect the lines of communion and community and custody and caution matter every bit as much today as they did in the beginning. The way we reverence life and respect those lines is how we show God and others that we truly understand the amazing gift of life. What I believe with all my heart is that God loves life. God deeply loves this world. He wants to see it flourish. The planet, the people, he wants to see it flourishing. And we hear his heartbeat, maybe even God's sorrow over the terrible necessity of what he had just done in these closing words that I want to read to you. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. Never again, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Never again. You can rest in this promise, brothers and sisters. We can rest in this together. It's not going to be a flood of waters that takes us out. You know, we ought to do a lot to pay attention to how our world, its climate, its environment is changing around us. We ought to take as many actions, I believe, as we can because we've been given custody of this earth, but it will not be the melting of the ice caps that mark the end of human history. God has promised that. That's not what is going to take us out. One day, there will, however, be a flood, a flood thicker than water. God's love and justice, the scriptures say, will come sweeping across this earth in a final moment. God's love and justice will bring about a final accounting and the ultimate renewal that we long to see. Sometimes I wonder if the raindrops are not already falling. The raindrops of that love and justice even in our time. But in the meantime, Let's all cherish this season of grace that we're living in. Let's cherish the gift we've been given. Let's let's love our neighbors harder, more, more passionately than we've been doing. And let's keep working at building the new ark God has given us to build. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. 
and let's not miss the boat. And let's keep inviting others into the boat together. Would you pray with me? Gracious God of salvation, giver of every grace, look with favor, we pray, upon this world you have made and redeemed through our Lord Jesus Christ. And fill us afresh by your Holy Spirit that we may walk from this place with you and with fresh eyes for every good possibility. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.